Well, it's good to uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. It's good to be in this new space. Uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, excited about the the ministry that's going to be uh, taking place here in the years to come. Uh, really, uh, again, like Thomas said, grateful to Corona Baptist Church and for their uh, just generosity uh, towards us. So uh, we are going to be continuing our series in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, the uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The words are going to be on the screen behind you, uh, behind me, excuse me. Uh, and so we'll also have the, the scripture passage up there. But if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along. John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Give you a moment to turn there. Here's what the Word of God says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had healed, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of bone and marrow. God, I pray that your word would um, just expose our hearts this morning. I pray that we would sit humbly under your word, that we would listen to what you have to say to us this morning, and that we would be willing to receive what you have to say to us this morning. God, I pray that you would remove distractions from our minds, 
anxieties that we may have come in with. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you this morning. God, nobody is here by accident. You brought every single person in this room here for a specific purpose this morning. Because you want to speak with them. You want to meet with them. You want them to hear your word. So I pray that they would listen. I pray that you would help them to listen. I pray that you would help me to preach. I need your help, God. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I'm powerless to be able to change any person in this room. God, only you can. Only by the power of the gospel can anybody be transformed. So Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would come and that you would help me in my weakness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage begins with Jesus coming upon a multitude of invalids, is what it says. And an invalid, were, that's just a, the word that's used here in the scripture, an invalid would refer to those who were blind, who were lame, who, uh, were, uh, who were basically unable to work, who were unable to get by on their own, and they were completely dependent upon the goodwill of others to be able to help them. And as he came to this place called the Pool of Bethesda, there was this, this sea of suffering that lay before him. Just imagine a multitude of people, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people, crippled, blind, lame, calling out for help, desperately laying there. Some of them been there for years, even decades. And they gathered there because they believed that at the Pool of Bethesda, that uh, every now and then an angel would come and stir the waters and whenever the waters were stirred, whoever went into the pool, whoever was the first person into the pool after the waters had been stirred, could be healed. And so all of these invalids would go and gather and just sit there waiting. They were desperately hoping for anything, something that could bring them healing. And imagine what this scene must have been like. And this is the first century, by the way. So if you were blind or lame, it meant that you were extremely poor. You were completely dependent upon the charity of others. There was no disability insurance or social security. There were no wheelchairs or assisted living facilities. There were no painkillers or food stamps. They didn't have that stuff. There was just nothing like that that existed to help people in this situation. You were completely dependent upon the charity and the goodwill of others. Just thousands of people in the saddest condition, so desperate that they were resorting to superstition. Have you ever seen severe poverty before, like in person? I remember when I went to Brazil for a mission trip and we went to some of the, the slums and there were little dwellings made with cardboard and uh, tin with muddy floors as far as the eye could see. There's people living in abject poverty, and it was just like this, this sea of poverty, I remember. The world is not as it should be. The brokenness of poverty, disease, division, war, broken homes, and more remind us of that regularly. Now, often, people instinctively turn to God to fix what's wrong in their lives. They go to God to treat the symptom rather than the actual sickness. The mistake that I want us to avoid in reading today's passage is to see it merely as a story about how Jesus can heal any sickness. That is gloriously true, okay? He can. Jesus can heal any 
sickness. But that's not the main point of this passage. There's something much bigger going on here. This healing and the events surrounding it point to something even better. This passage reveals who Jesus is and what he is doing in the world. So if I could sum up the main point of the message in one sentence this morning, I would tell you it's that Jesus is the Son of God who came to restore what is broken. Jesus is the Son of God who came to restore what is broken. So what I want to do is I want to take those two uh, statements, Jesus is the Son of God, and then Jesus came to restore what is broken, and I want us to spend some time on that first statement, and then we'll spend some time talking about, you know, so we'll spend some time talking about who Jesus is, and then we'll spend time talking about what he came to do. All right, so let's talk about Jesus is the Son of God. So the purpose statement, for those of you who've been following along in this sermon series with us, uh, for the Gospel of John is in John chapter 20, verse 31 where he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, that's why this gospel's been written. I want you to know I've written all these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the ultimate aim of this entire gospel. And Jesus does two things in this passage that point to his identity as the Son of God. So the first thing that Jesus did is he demonstrated his authority over sickness. So by miraculously healing this paralyzed man, Jesus demonstrated that he's the Son of God. All of creation is subservient to him and must obey him. Jesus' deity is is highlighted in this passage first by the severity of the man's case. He had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus went to the worst of the worst. He went to the absolute very worst case there. This was a clear case of a miraculous healing that couldn't be explained other than than to attribute it to God. This wasn't some parlor trick. This was a man who was clearly crippled. He was, there was no way he had any hope of being healed outside of a miracle. And Jesus' deity is also highlighted by not just the severity of the man's case, but the suddenness of the healing. I mean, all Jesus had to do was speak the word, and instantly the man was healed. Solely by the power of his word. This wasn't a gradual healing. Jesus didn't pray for him and then have to try again a little bit later. He didn't have to keep trying. He didn't you know, send him to the doctor. He just spoke a word, and the man was healed like a master commanding his servant or a king commanding his subjects. How did that happen? It's because Jesus is the Son of God. John chapter 1 verse 3 says that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is the same voice that spoke creation into existence. Jesus is not just a great prophet or a mere man. He was in the beginning with God and was God. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Since the beginning of creation, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It is that powerful voice that spoke to the paralytic, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. But Jesus' miraculous healing isn't the only thing going on here. It's not the only thing that points to his deity. Jesus also demonstrated his authority over the Sabbath. 
Jesus healed this crippled man on the Sabbath and then told him to pick up his mat and to walk. The problem is this was a violation of the rabbinical code. Okay, So the Jewish religious teachers, they had the law of God, but then they began to add laws on top of the law of God just to make sure that you didn't even get close to violating the law of God. They essentially began to accumulate more and more rules that God had never commanded over the years. And by telling this man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath, Jesus was telling this man not to break the law of God, but to violate the rabbinical code that the Pharisees had put in place. So Jesus purposefully did this, knowing that this man whom he had healed was going to violate this code and draw the ire of the Jewish authorities. Now one of my big questions as I studied this passage was, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus almost seems to be intentionally provoke the Jewish authorities. I mean, Jesus easily could have just healed the man, kept it quiet, and told him to leave the mat there so as not to cause a disturbance, but he didn't. I think there's a couple of things going on here. First, Jesus was exposing the hypocrisy and the calloused hearts of the Pharisees. Look at verses 10 and 11 again of our passage. It says that says that, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So there's, there's, just picture this. There's this guy who's been crippled for 38 years. He's been suffering. For 38 years, that's longer than most of the people in this room have been alive. Longer than I've been alive. I mean, that's longer than the average lifespan back then of somebody. This guy has been crippled for a long time. And the first thing that they have to say to him when he's healed is, Hey, you're breaking the rules. Why are you walking with that mat? The dude hasn't walked in 38 years. Not a, hey, congratulations. Not a, hey, we're excited for you. I mean, instead of rejoicing that a poor man had been healed, the first thing they do is accuse him. They stick their finger in his face. And then instead of being in awe that a clear, miraculous sign from God had just been performed by Jesus, they got angry that their authority was being challenged. Clearly, they were missing the point of the Sabbath. They had twisted it. They were not loving God or people, which is the whole point of the law. So they were following the letter of the law, and they had all these little regulations set up, but they were missing the entire point. Friends, if the, if the fruit of your religion looks like this, then your religion is worthless. You can follow all the rules that you want. You can memorize Scripture. You can go to church every Sunday. You can even preach great sermons and lead big churches, but if you don't have love, it's lifeless religion, and it misses the entire point. Jesus was exposing the hypocrisy and the callous hearts of the Jewish leaders by telling this man to pick up his mat and walk, but he was also doing something else. He was also showing that he has the authority to interpret the point and the purpose of the Sabbath. As God, as the Son of God, he has the authority to interpret the Sabbath. See, the, the Pharisees and the rabbis taught that only God was not subject to the Sabbath regulations. 
because they knew and understood that God created the earth, but then God was continually at work upholding the universe. So God was not just on a permanent vacation. He wasn't just permanently resting. God is continually at work in the world because God created all things. God doesn't need rest. So when Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working, Jesus was making himself equal with God. The Jewish people knew that only the Father, only God was the one who doesn't have to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yeah, that includes me too, because I and the Father are one. And there was no doubt in his opponents' minds that this is exactly what he was saying and doing. You see, we see that in verse 18. It says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the most important question you will ever answer. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 23, just a few verses later, we're going to look at it next week. He says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We do this, uh, this thing called Gospel and Grub a couple of Friday nights uh, each month where we go and we, we share the gospel. Um, we've been doing it in Old Town Alexandria recently, and um, we'll go and ask people if we can pray for them and, and share the gospel with various people. And there was one uh, man and, and, and a, a, his girlfriend, um, and we were talking with them, and he asked me about people who are sincere in their worship of God but don't believe that Jesus is God. He said, so, you know, what about, you know, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims? And he said, I believe that as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter what you call God or what you think he's like. We're all really worshiping the same God at the end of the day. And that as long as you're sincere, you know, that we're all going to end up winding up at the same place. Um, so he, what he was implying is that sincerity is what counts. Like that's what counts as sincerity. All religions worship the same God. You just need to be sincere. But this not only defies Scripture, but it defies logic. We are not in the dark about what God has like, is like. We don't have to guess about what God is like or who He is or what His name is. He's revealed Himself to us. He's revealed Himself to us in His Word, and He's revealed Himself to us in the person of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, Jesus came to reveal to us who God is. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus came and he made that claim. Apart from me, no one can come to the Father. So Jesus is either God or he's not. You can either worship him or you cannot worship him. But if Jesus is God and you do not worship him, then what he's saying here in John 5, 23 is that you do not know God if you do not worship Jesus. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, the one who came in the flesh, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead. Friends, sincerity cannot save you. This, The invalid sincerely wanted to be healed of his disease. 
He sincerely laid by the pool of Bethesda and hoped that it could bring him healing, but it did not work. He was hopelessly lost until Jesus came. So we talked about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. But let's talk about what he came to do. He said in verse 17, he said, My father is working until now, and I am working. So what sort of work is the father and the son doing? Jesus came to restore what is broken. He came to restore what is broken. Jesus told the Pharisees that even though it's the Sabbath, God is at work. And the sort of work that God is doing is the sort of work that we see Jesus doing when he heals this invalid. He's doing the work of restoration. You see, in in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, God uh, finishes his work of creation. It says, on the seventh day, God rested. He saw that everything was very good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. But then the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve rebel against God. They sin against God. They depart from God's design. And because of that, death and futility enter into the world. God's good creation is corrupted. And so now there is unfinished work. There's unfinished business. And God is at work to restore what is broken and corrupted by sin. And that's really the storyline of the entire Bible. That's the whole point of the, of the Gospels, that God is at work restoring people and creation back to Himself. He's restoring what sin has corrupted. So this is what this healing in John chapter 5 is pointing towards. It's more than just a story about how God healed a sick man. It's a sign pointing to the ultimate restoration that God is bringing about through Christ Jesus. In Christ, God is undoing the curse of sin and death and making all things new. Let's look at what we can learn about Jesus' work of restoration in this story. I just want to make a couple of observations about how God is restoring things. First, we see that Jesus moves towards need. Jesus moves towards need. In verse 6, we read that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So as he approached this vast crowd of suffering people, Jesus took notice of one man whose suffering was particularly great. We also read there that Jesus knew that he had been there a long time. Friends, no matter what your suffering may be, Jesus sees and Jesus knows. Though you may feel like God has not heard your prayers, I can assure you that He has. I don't know what you're enduring. Maybe it's a disease like this man in this passage. Maybe it's the, the aching sadness of infertility. Maybe it's the long, dark night of depression. Whatever it is, be assured that Jesus moves towards need. Every prayer whispered or cried out, every sleepless night, every tear you have cried are all seen and known by God. Jesus moves towards need. And just because God does not answer 
in our own way or in our own timing does not mean that he doesn't see or know. The God who made you, who knows how many hairs are on your head, cares about every intricate detail of your life. None of it is an accident. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus says, apart from your father. And you are of more value than many sparrows. This passage really brings us great comfort when we think about the fact that Jesus moves towards need. But it also provides us as the church with instruction. Because brothers and sisters, since Jesus moved towards need, as Christians, so should we. The church is called to move towards need, not away from it. I'm so thankful that God has provided a place for us to gather in the city of D.C., inside the district. Doing ministry inside the city can be hard, but we're called to move towards need, not to flee it. One of the ways that we're doing that as a church that I'm excited about is we're partnering with a, a, a Christian nonprofit called DC 127. DC 127 is a foster and adoption ministry in DC that helps at risk families and equips families to foster and adopt children in need. One of the, the programs that they've got is a Communities for Families program, and it's a foster care prevention program that puts a team together to come around an at-risk family to, keep, to, to, to give single moms the support that they need to care for their children, to keep their children out of the foster system. And so one of the things we're going to be doing as a church is we're going to be putting together a team as a church to come around one of these families and be a support system for one of these single moms so that we can help that mom, that single mom, keep her children so that her, because once children go into the foster system, I don't know how, you know, some of you may know more about the foster system than others, but it's extremely difficult on the entire family and it's not good for the children. And so we want, not just do we, not only do we want to raise up uh, families here in Pillar DC who will say, hey, we'll, we'll volunteer, we'll, we'll foster, we'll adopt, we'll get certified to be able to be a babysitter to provide reprieve for foster parents. There's all sorts of ways you can get involved, but we also want to help prevent children from going into the system in the first place. And so we're going to be putting that team together. And actually, uh, this Wednesday evening from 6 to 8 p.m., they're going to be having an online training where you can get trained and certified to be a part of that team. And so if you sense that might be something you're interested in, there's a sign-up sheet downstairs at the info table. So before you leave today, make sure you sign up for that, and we'll send you the info. And uh, you, can also, you can talk to myself and then uh, Walker and Emily Conkle. You've got Conkles, you want to raise your hands. So the Conkles are going to be helping actually lead that team for our church. We're really excited about that. So you can also uh, talk to them. And um, so we're excited to get that going. But that's one of the ways, just one of the practical ways that we as a church want to move towards need. So as a church, let's demonstrate the compassion and the mercy of Christ by moving towards need. One of the other things that we see Jesus doing in this passage, one of the ways we see God at work restoring things is that Jesus prioritizes spiritual need over physical need. Jesus prioritizes spiritual need over physical need. So there were a multitude of invalids at the pool of Bethesda. Did you notice that? And he only healed one. There were a lot of people that needed help. There were a lot of people that needed healing, but Jesus healed one. Why didn't he heal all of them? 
And not only did he not heal all of them, in verse 13 we read that Jesus, it says Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. It's telling us that the reason Jesus withdrew is because there were so many people. Because presumably Jesus knew that if he stuck around, word was going to quickly spread and he was going to be mobbed by a crowd of people who were going to want to be healed, who were going to flock to him. And so he intentionally withdrew. He left. Why did he do that? Didn't Jesus want to heal those other people too? Does he not care about their suffering? Does Jesus not care about the suffering of people in the world now whom he has not healed? Yes, Jesus cares about all suffering. But relieving temporal suffering is not the primary reason that Jesus came. See, the the physical suffering and brokenness in our lives is just a symptom pointing towards our even greater need, which is our spiritual brokenness. We know this is Jesus' emphasis because of what he says to the man after he's healed him in verse 14. Look at what Jesus says. He says, he comes and finds him after he's healed him, and he says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I have got a question for you. What could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? In the first century, no painkillers, no care or anything like that. You're just stuck. People have to carry you around everywhere. You're just a beggar on the streets. What could be worse than that? Jesus is talking about this man's soul. The worst thing is hell. Hell is far worse than being an invalid for your entire life. It is worse, it is far worse than any physical suffering that you could ever face on earth. It is eternal and it's hopeless. You know, God could fix all of the problems in your life right now your financial problems, your physical pain, your emotional distress. But if your soul is lost, if you go to hell, then all is lost. And this is why Jesus came. That's the primary reason He came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus did not come to give you your best life now or to make all of your problems go away. He came to redeem people from himself, for Himself from every tribe and tongue and nation so that they might worship Him before the throne in the new heavens and in the new earth for all eternity. Every single person on the earth has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us. Every single person has rebelled against God and broken His commands. Sin is defiance against a holy God. And Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is death. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous before God. There's nothing we can do to avoid the just sentence of condemnation. And this, this man, this invalid, had tried for 38 years in his own effort to restore himself. But he couldn't. He could not rid himself of the disease that ravaged his body. And try as you might, you cannot rid yourself of your sin. No amounts of religious devotion or ritualistic practices can save you. Being baptized can't save you any, from sin any more than jumping into the pool of Bethesda could make a paralyzed man walk. 
Going to church on Sunday can't save you any more than lying by a pool waiting for angels to stir the waters. You need a Savior who can accomplish your salvation on your behalf. You need the mighty voice of the Son of God to come to you when you are dead in your sin and to command you, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. You need the voice of the Son of God to speak spiritual life into you. You need to be born again. And Christ Jesus is that Savior. He came to die on the cross to take the punishment for your sin, in your place. That's why Jesus came. And then by the same power that made this invalid of 30 years get up and take up his mat, by that same power, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death. And now, Acts chapter 17, verse 30, 31 says that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So there's a choice before you today. You can either receive the grace of God in Christ, or like the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you can oppose Him. But if you reject Christ, you will stand alone before God on Judgment Day. You will not have Jesus as your advocate. You'll be alone before God. And your righteousness will be found wanting. You will stand guilty before a holy God. And I don't say this to scare you. I say this because this is what the Word of God tells us. This is the truth. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that those who reject the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's what is owed to all of us for our sin. If you hear that, and you bristle at it and you go, I don't agree with that. I don't think God's like that. I don't think I'm bad enough to deserve that. Then what you need to understand is that you are far underestimating, number one, how holy God is, and number two, how sinful you are. None of us is righteous. Every single one of us is deserving of God's condemnation. The only way to be saved is by grace. The reason that Jesus came was to take that wrath of God in our place, to take that punishment that we deserved in our place so that we could receive grace, so that we could be adopted as children of God. Though we are undeserving sinners, yet we receive the free gift of God's grace and we're treated as sons and as daughters. It's a free gift of grace. So 2 Thessalonians 1.9, when it says that those who reject the gospel will, will suffer the, etern- the punishment of eternal destruction, like that's not fire and brimstone, that's Bible. These warnings in Scripture are God's mercy. Like a warning sign at the edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon, they're there to keep you from wandering over the edge to your death. That's why these warnings are in Scripture. Do you want to be healed? That's the question that Jesus asked the invalid. And it's the question that I'm asking you this morning. And as I was initially studying 
this passage, that question sounded odd, you know. I mean, of course the man wanted to be healed, right? That's like asking a man dying of thirst in the desert if he'd like a cup of cold water. Yes, I would like to be healed. What's weird is that Jesus knew the answer, which means that he wasn't asking the man if he wanted to be healed because he needed information. So why did he ask? Why did he ask this question if he already knew the answer? I think the suggestion in Jesus' question was that if the man really wants to be healed, he needed to stop returning to the wrong source for the healing. He was going to the wrong source. And so really kind of the sense I get here is that Jesus is going to him and saying, are you done? Are you finished coming to this pool and in vain waiting for some waters to be stirred? Are you finished depending on superstition? Are you ready to actually be healed today? Are you ready to come to the one who truly can heal you and make you whole? I've met many addicts who want to be healed, but not bad enough that they're willing to leave their addiction. I've met, uh, there, and there are many people whose lives are a mess, and their lives are being destroyed by sin, and they want to be healed but not badly enough that they're willing to leave that sin behind and put all their trust in Jesus. I mean, do you really want to be healed? Do you want to be healed bad enough that you're willing to leave behind your sin and to follow Jesus? Don't reject God's grace today. There's no other source that can restore what's broken in you. And most importantly, there's no one else that can reconcile you to God. No matter how great of a sinner you think you are, no case is too far gone for God. I mean, you notice too here, there's nothing in this invalid, in this crippled man that warranted Jesus' compassion. He was not looking for God, and and he was, we even kind of, it's implied that he was in this miserable state due to his own sin. And he didn't even have faith to be healed. He didn't ask Jesus if he could be healed. And yet Jesus healed him anyways. Even though he was the worst of all the cases at Bethesda, Jesus easily made his broken body new. And he can and he will do the same thing in you. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, how far you've strayed, how far and fast you've been running from God. There is nothing In your life, there is nothing that you have done that Jesus can't forgive you for, and there's nothing so broken that Jesus can't restore if you'll come to him this morning. Now, before we close, there's there's one final important principle I want to point out from this passage. I mentioned I kind of alluded this to this earlier, but it is not always God's will to heal everyone now, physically. There are some teachers of the Bible, preachers out there, who will teach you that God always wants to heal and that you just have to have enough faith. And what's implied is that if you are not healed, then you don't have enough faith. God wants to do it, but He's waiting on your faith to increase so that He can pour out the blessing on you. This is a deceptive and destructive teaching that heaps guilt and discouragement on suffering people. If healing doesn't happen, then what happens here is that blame is heaped on you as the sufferer 
for not having enough faith or for not obeying. And it's made even worse when some of these teachers teach that you need to give money to their ministries to unleash God's healing on your life. Friends, anything, any good gift that God gives us is a gift of grace. He doesn't give it to us because we've sowed a seed of offering financially to a ministry. He doesn't give it to you because you've been able to muster up enough faith. God pours out his good gifts by his grace alone. Does this mean that God never physically heals? Of course God still physically heals. Yes, God can and we should ask God to physically heal. And we should trust and believe that he can and he will physically heal at times. But we also need to understand that not all physical healing is going to happen now on this side of eternity. Because remember, like we've been talking about, this miracle, this sign is pointing towards the ultimate restoration. When Jesus returns, he's going to make all things new. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, and all things will be made new. So even if your healing doesn't come now, it will come at the return of Jesus if you have trusted in him. So it's not a matter of if Jesus is going to heal, really. It's a matter of when. And when Jesus does heal now, when we see healings like this in John chapter 5, this is a foretaste of what's coming. That's why Jesus is doing this. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of the ultimate healing that is coming. Sometimes, in God's wisdom, He permits suffering to continue for a time. If you're dealing with suffering of some sort in your life, and I think we all probably are. I mean, I, you know, some of you know me, like I've had chronic low back issues for a long time. I've prayed and I've asked God to heal my lower back. And I'm going to keep praying and asking him to heal my lower back. And I'm going to ask you guys to pray, continue to pray and ask God to heal my lower back. But I also know that there's no accident in anything that God does. There is a purpose even in our pain. We might not understand why, but as Pastor John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in our life, and we might be aware of three of them. He is God, and we are not. You know, one thing that suffering definitely does for us as Christians is it keeps us dependent on the Lord. Have you ever noticed how oftentimes the times in your life where you draw closer to the Lord and you learn more about who He is are times when you've been going through trials and tribulations? Oftentimes, those are the times in our lives when we most experience God's nearness because the Psalms tell us the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I found that to be true in my life. Our weaknesses and our sufferings teach us to cling closely to Him. Like the rod and the staff of the Good Shepherd, they keep us from wandering off on our own from the delusion that we can get along without God. I like how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 1.9. He said, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, there's so much more going on in John chapter 5 than a miraculous healing. That's absolutely one of the things that's going on. Yes, Jesus can heal. And in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to give an opportunity for you. I'm going to ask the worship team to start making their way up here. And if there's something going on in your life, if you're, if you're going through a difficult time, whether it's a you know, physical healing that you're asking God for or it's you know, just emotional healing or uh, you know, anything like that, 
uh, we want to pray for you, and we want to pray with you. And so we're going to have a couple of deacons out there in the back, right outside these back doors. And if uh, while the band's playing, you can go out there if you would like us to pray with you and for you, and we would love to do that. Or maybe you need to decide to leave behind your sin and follow Jesus today. Maybe like this invalid, you know you've been going to the wrong source your entire life to try to make yourself right with God. Maybe you know you've been looking to the wrong things in your life to try to fix what's broken, and you've been turning to substitutes. You've been turning to idols. You've been turning to other things to try to fix what's wrong. And so this morning, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. I want to invite you to leave your sin behind, to leave those those broken cisterns that can't hold water behind and come to Jesus and allow him to heal you and to make you whole this morning. So if you'd like to make that decision, again, once the band starts playing, you can go to the back and one of the deacons or one of the elders would love to pray for you. I'm going to close right now in prayer and then I'm going to turn it over to the worship team as we're going to stand and sing. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. And Jesus, we praise you as the only one who can truly heal and restore us. And we praise you as the one who is restoring all things. You are coming back again to make all things new. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You have already conquered sin. You have already conquered death at the cross and by your resurrection. And we are just awaiting the consummation of the kingdom of God. We are just awaiting the fulfillment of the kingdom to fully come here on earth. In the meantime, God, I pray that you would help us to look to you and to trust in you, even in the midst of our suffering. God, even in the midst of our difficulties, help us to trust in you. I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, Jesus, that you would open up their eyes, open up their ears. God, give them a new heart. Take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh so that they might be born again. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.